and welcome to the latest edition of SFI Not So Live with me, Jay Evans, your host. I'm joined today by four industry specialists and some faces you have seen and two brand new ones. So uh, I'm going to go around the room and introduce everybody before we go on to this. But just for the benefit of the audience, we are recording uh, for September 2022. So if you're listening back, anything we talk about with regards to rates, products will be incorrect if the market has changed. So that's just a bit of a caveat from us. Um, now on to the fun bit. So let's go around the room and introduce uh, my guests today. So first one is a bit of a regular, Tony. Tony, do you want to do a quick introduction to who you are and what you do? Yeah. Thank you. Morning, everybody. My name is Tony Hall. I'm head of mortgage sales here at Saffron, uh, looking after all things mortgage intermediary. Short but sweet. Uh, also joined by um, someone who's been on the podcast before, actually, from the FT Advisor, the lovely Ruby Hinsliff. Ruby, do you want to say a quick introduction to who you are and what you do? Hello. Yes. Thank you, Jay. Um, yeah, I'm Ruby. I'm a senior reporter over at FT Advisor and I cover a lot of things uh, to do with mortgages. So, um, yes, I've spoken to you guys and Tony before for various things. Um, looking forward to chatting today. Welcome to the podcast and two new welcomes. So we have two new BDMs um, from Saffron, the two of the latest intake, actually. So I'm going to go to Leslie first. Leslie Terry, she's one of the new BDMs for which region, Leslie? And just give us a little introduction to you as well. Hi, morning everybody. I'm Leslie Terry. Um, I joined Saffron in June as the Central Belt BDM. Um, I've been in mortgages for 20 years and previously to working at Saffron, I worked at a new build brokers for 17 years. Wow. 20 years? If anyone could see what I can see on my screen, I can't believe that Leslie's been in mortgages for 20 years, but really I'm totally shame. Next one, Lee. Lee Williams. Lee, welcome. And uh, maybe no introduction, you. you are very new. Yeah, very new. So yeah, I'm Lee Williams. I'm the brand new BDM for the Southwest. Um, yeah, literally started on Monday. So I have not been in the industry as long as Leslie, but I do look older. Okay, so you're going to believe this one. Um, so I've been in the industry for the last 17 years. And that's ranged from a broker, sales manager, and then most recently with a network. Brilliant stuff. Welcome, everybody. And we'll crack on in just a second. So just for the benefit of the audience, this podcast, we do talk about the mortgage and property industry. Just a bit of a caveat. This is our own personal opinions um, and not necessarily that of our employers. So, um, right, guys, let's crack on uh, with a story that has been rumbling for a little while now. Um, and I know, Tony, you've been quite vocal on this and we've been quite open about it as, as a building society. Yeah. But we're going to just talk about the pausing of lenders. Um, I think we're on, Ruby, you can correct me here, but I think we're on seven officially. I think nine. we might be on eight now. Oh, we're on um, eight? So since okay. I, yeah, yeah. Since I wrote my last story, a broker alerted me to um, to a yeah, platform um, as well, um, I think paused okay. briefly in August. So now it's eight. Wow. So there's eight uh, that we know about. Um, we have had this discussion. About, well, yeah. There are a couple that we have found out via social media that have now gone public. But So there is um, a, an industry-wide issue. Let's call it that. Tony, I know you don't want to talk too much on the subject, but I'm going to come to you first, just from a lender perspective. Yeah. Um, you've had to pause. Uh, there are reasons for that pause. Just very, very briefly, because I don't want to dwell on it, but very, very briefly, uh, just summarize the reason why. We were full. You know, the, the, our products were that attractive uh, in a market that is still crazily buying houses, um, like they're going out of fashion. And we were busy across every single product in our portfolio. And as other lenders pulled out uh, or ra ra raised their rates, uh, we, we started rising to being even more attractive. And it got to a point where we, for the benefit of our um, service to our brokers, but also for the benefit of our staff's well-being, it was the sensible thing to just pause, take a deep breath, get things in line, and then go back. I mean, Ruby, I'd just come to you because I know um, you've covered the story. And they, we, we're now saying the seven that we know about, the eight, the eight from, from now, just finding this out. There seems to be a consistent pattern. It is all about focus on service and stuff. But this is a market... Uh, a market-wide thing and it is by the looks of it with the growing interest rates people just really rushing through we've got a lot of remortgages that are required this year a lot of a lot of products that are expiring um what's the mood like around you speak to to brokers you speak to lenders you speak to various people what's the mood like across the industry yeah so I, I think I think initially um when this all started and 
I mean, because we've seen an uptick, haven't we? So in June, I think there was one lender that paused. July, there was one. And then August, we've now seen six. Um, so and, and some have jumped back in, some still haven't. But I think that when it all sort of started, brokers were quite frustrated and they were quite vocal about that on Twitter. But I think especially since um, Tony's been a bit more vocal about it, I, I have actually seen quite a few brokers come out as consolidarity um, with with lenders, specifically Saffron, you know, um, acknowledging that that, you know, there is a line and, and crossing that is, you know, with support staff is, is, isn't right. And, and so I think that's really nice that that that's happened because um, it shows that, you know, we are kind of all in this together, which is something Tony said to me when we sat down together to chat about it. Um, so I think that the mood has definitely shifted and that brokers have, have started to realise um, at least some of those that kind of maybe didn't initially that that it is a, an industry-wide issue, um, which perhaps wasn't as clear when the first few lenders were having to pause. But now that eight have had to, I think it's quite clear um, that, it, that it is an industry-wide issue and there's only so much lenders, individual lenders can do, and that it's quite clear that lenders are peddling, you know. I mean, like Tony said, Saffron was dealing with double the amount of, of business, you know, so it's 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 a completely unusual time. So I think that brokers are starting to, to understand that and, and see that and be a bit more understanding. I think it's, it's it's like the frustration of standing in a queue at Tesco's and getting upset about it. You join the queue knowing you're in the queue, but it's, if you can see the queue in Tesco's, you can't see the queue as a broker. It's difficult to, mm. to balance that. Leslie, you've been uh, with Saffron during this process and you've seen this happening, obviously, with, with the pause and everything, but you are broker facing. How has it been for the brokers? Are they, are they vocalising their frustration? What, what sort of things are you hearing from them? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to remember that it is only a small amount of brokers that, um, you know, we have, um, we, we understand that brokers are disgruntled and we're as frustrated as they are because, you know, we pride ourselves in customer service. Um, you know, we've got a great team. Uh, the team are great at what they do and we pride ourselves in customer service. So it's frustrating when our service standards slipped. So we understand from a broker's perspective, their frustrations, um, you know, it, it it comes down the tree, doesn't it? Um, you know, they get pressure on from um, solicitors, from vendors, from home buyers. So we understand that. And I think that because we still manually underwrite as well, because we are a specialist lender, things do take more time and we have products that are specialist products. So uh, that does come with more risks. We are going to ask for more documents than other lenders would do due to the fact that we're specialist. Um so we understand the frustrations of brokers, but also our staff are at the forefront of our business. We don't we don't want any of those um, receiving abuse. And also there is a lot of pressure on staff as well. You know, they've been working longer hours to try and get through the backlog, but that can only go on for so long. So, you know, it does have to come to a point where you say, you know, something has, has to give a little bit. Um, but I always have my broker hat on and from a broker's perspective, um, you know, with the pressures of whether it's new build or they're going to miss deadlines, but it's hard to it's hard to um, justify where you uh, escalate one case and not another. So we're trying to do it as fairly as possible to all of our customers. We can't just you know pick and choose customers out the queue because we have to be fair to all of our customers. I think I just Jay, let me just jump in on that just just to just to clarify one extra issue. We didn't pause because of our inefficiency or our process, okay? That is a contributory factor, right? We pause because we're full. You know, you can't get any more into a cup once it's full. It has to go somewhere else and, and we had to release that pressure. So that was just so what, Les, what Leslie said is absolutely spot on, but just for clarity, it's not down to how we do things it's the fact that as ruby said what i mentioned that we're two and a half times busier than we should be at this time of year for us so that's the re that's a big reason so yeah, sorry i also think another reason is is that because we are a specialist lender and other lenders pause lending before ourselves then obviously the pond is smaller so you get a higher influx of business as well which was a massive contributory yeah. factor as well yeah i think you know it's fair to say that the the industry 
it's an industry-wide thing and, and we need to maybe have a little bit of empathy for each other. We're all in the same situation. So from a lender perspective, the brokers, the estate agents, and then right down to you know, the borrower themselves, everybody's got frustration. Lee, you've worked a lot with brokers. Um, do you think there is perhaps a little bit of a lack of understanding of how the lender process works? Do you think there's some education still to be done on that? And do you think that actually the frustrations come from maybe... Not to not to disrespect anyone, but maybe lesser experienced brokers as opposed to the more experienced. Because the comments I've seen on LinkedIn from more experienced brokers have been really positive and saying we all need to work together. So do you think there's a bit of maybe a young person there? And secondly, on that same point, do you think that they are then not able to tell the consumer? So they're actually getting more frustration from their borrower, which is then frustrating the broker more. So do you think there's a there's a break in our education chain? I think there's definitely a little bit of that. I think that I think first of all, from a, from a broker point of view, it's an exceptional job, and they're doing a brilliant job. I think that from brokers, they're going to get it from every angle. You know, they're the one, they're the epicenter of any frustration. It goes directly to them. So, you know, what they're dealing with will will be from from many different avenues. Um, and obviously, you know, when you're a new to new to industry advisor you know, dealing with this level of communication, maybe not being able to give them exactly what they've discussed previously. They're not giving them the service that they were expecting. I think that from from that point of view, it can be a lot harder for them to manage that situation. Um, I think also you've got a lot of brokers out there that I've been talking to that, you know, they've not had to manage their time as well as they have to at the moment. You know, time management is the one commodity time that we all want more of we can't give more time. So I think that, that that's that's the key key thing. And when you're new to industry, these are all things that you're learning, unfortunately, on the job. You know, there's no other way. There's no other, other substitution for this. Um, I, th- I think going back to what you said about new to industry as well, though, I think that education is absolutely massive from a broker point of view. If I look at the brokers that I've been talking to that have really managed well in the situation and been giving me a lot of feedback on on you know how they've been able to maximize the opportunities because a huge amount of opportunity out there let's not forget that the opportunity has been huge we've been able to help a lot of customers which is brilliant so so are they so ultimately from from that point of view you know if you're new to industry as well that education of customers so they actually understand the situation they're not just basing it on what they've seen on the news, for example, you know, those sorts of things, those fear factors that can come to a customer. I think the brokers are very well placed. And in the main, they're very, very good at educating a customer on what is going on, how we're going to work together, how, you know, basically putting that arm around them, as it were, supporting them through it. But, you know, rather than saying, we're going to hope to have an update in five working days, they're saying 10, 15, and this is why. And I think that with that sort of level of education, a customer is ultimately then going to be less frustrated. Do you think so? I think that's that's definitely been been a key factor. Wave at me if you want to answer this, but do you think that we, as a lender, I say we, the royal we, as if I worked with you, but the as a lender, do you think Saffron has the responsibility to educate the consumers on behalf of the brokers? Not not just Saffron, but all lenders. Do you think we should be driving that education to support the brokers or do you think it should be broker to broker to consumer or do we need to go through the broker and teach the broker and move on what what is an answer to making the borrower understand that the market changes and changes about league i'll come to you first yeah well well personally i I think that you're not going to please everyone with this answer because you know there's going to be some that will want the advisor in the firm to absolutely be front and center when it comes to communicating. Um, and, and obviously that way it can be personalized to that case rather than a generic. Statement. Sorry. So let me and just, let me just re- rephrase sorry. that question. Sorry. That was a bit yeah. confusing. I mean, yeah. from a marketing perspective, so from a, a, a longer term rather than sort of on a case by case basis on a longer term basis, yeah. do you think we've been a bit lax at maybe educating the consumer from a lender perspective? Because we don't, lend direct to consumer we go to a broker no. so you know that that horrible word of intermediary i think you, something you said lee earlier about being in the middle that that word it's, just says you're the one that's going to take all the yeah. brief sorry so you go you can say but yeah that's what i meant so do you think we've got a yeah response? I so I'll, if i i'll quickly say and it might help um it might help spar some other other thoughts on this i think the answer is yeah i think it's all for us it's 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 quite straightforward um we're happy to, you know we, we are happy to I'm willing to educate consumers with with the outcome being go and speak to a professional broker. Now that's easy for us 
right? Because we are 100% intermediary distribution, yeah? When you're a lender that's got a direct arm as well, you have you have that challenge because hang on a minute, I've got to I've got to fill my own basket of direct volume as well as my intermediary volume. So it's always a challenge as to where where do you shout? What do you, who do you educate on? So I think for us it's easier for for lenders who who have got two mouths to feed. It could be slightly more more challenging. Now the largest mouth for any lender is intermediary by some considerable margin, you know. Um, but we are, you know, as Jay, we've chatted before, I'm fully supportive of the consumer being educated. And, and I think, you know, there's more of that. And the articles and the journalists like Ruby, who are starting to write more about this and get more into this, it, it starts to make it more, more um, into the consciousness. But I think there's more we could do. But we would be doing it with a lens to drive somebody to go and see an intermediary, a trusted one. Lee, did you want to follow up on your answer? Sorry, I did interrupt you last time. So I just want to yeah, no, 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 I, I, no, I totally agree with that. I think that the key thing with with that message is that when it comes to a you know, edu- you know, communication to brokers as well, we've got to definitely consider that brokers are busy. So when it comes to how we're communicating with brokers, we have to look at the mediums that we're doing it. Because if you're sending an email, and, and no dis- disrespect to brokers, um, I think anybody <laughs> will ignore emails when they're busy. And if they see that it's not a priority, it's maybe something that they haven't been able to pick up on. So I think that, you know, the way in which the communication is done also needs to be reviewed. Because, you know, if you're getting an email out, whether it be direct or via a mortgage club or, you know, a network or whatever it may be, that those emails, if you're really busy, are the ones that unfortunately they may not get to. And I think that's where, you know, we can do a fantastic job of sort of looking at how can we communicate with, uh, as an industry, with the brokers to make sure that, and I think COVID has ha- absolutely helped with that to a degree. You know, I'm not saying it's a positive at all, but but I think from a COVID point of view, you know, we've done a lot more remotely. You know, there's been a lot more webinars. There's been a lot more Teams meetings, a lot more presentations. Brokers, if anything, have probably got more CPD than they've ever needed before. So from that point of view, it's, it's being able to use those mediums, in my opinion, to be able to benefit the brokers to get that information as quickly as possible when they need it. It's kind of the reason we're sitting here, to be honest, exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, Leslie, I'll come to you first. Ruby, you're coming next. All right, Leslie, go on. You put your hand first. I'll show you first. I also think as well that um, managing expectations from the beginning needs to be at the forefront um, with brokers now. I think, you know, we have benefited over the years of day one underwrites, um, whereas now, you know, I think that brokers need to accept and and customers that, you know, it, it might take a couple of months to get a mortgage offer and it might be a couple of months after that before they complete on the house. Um, you know, the time scales for many, many lenders that perhaps had a two or three, um, you know, day to underwriter in the past that have gone up to 20 days plus. And it's not just the smaller banks and building societies, it's big national lenders who have thousands of people working for them and are very system driven. Um, so I think if, if expectations are managed right from the beginning, of the transaction with the customer then I think you know if the customer knows that they're not going to get an update for a good while on their inquiry right from the beginning then they'll be chasing the broker less throughout the process for an update and of course we all know that the more you chase something the less time you are doing or like you know working on that customer's case or as a as a, a building society working on that customer's case so I think that you almost not need to leave leave everybody to it, but if you just manage those expectations from the start, I think that it'll be a much smoother transaction for the customer journey. Sorry, Ruby, you come to you. No, sorry, I was just going to say in the last like kind of well, sort of since all the rate rises started rapidly happening and product changes sort of on top of each other, I think it's been interesting to look at the last sort of six months and and see how lenders have dealt with that from a communication point of view. I think Saffron's been pretty good at this, and because I've seen the amount of time you've given brokers for changes, and it's been a lot longer than the average, which has just been like a few hours. And I think that was one of the big frustrations brokers were having 
um, for the first half of this year is that, you know, from a communication point, that's how lenders could have really helped. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I'm not really specifically looking at Safran. I think it's more probably the high street lenders that, that were the big ones here, um, rapidly changing within, you know, a few hours. Of, and so brokers are panically calling up their, their clients. I've heard stories of brokers having to call up clients who were in the delivery room with, you know, and they're having to scramble to get papers together because they literally have a few hours. So I think that if we look at the past six months, I think, it's, it, you know, I, I guess a, a congratulations to those lenders that, that didn't put their brokers in that position um, and did give them that that bit more time. Because when you hear stories like that, it really does make a difference for clients at the end of the, of the chain um, to just have that bit more time. I mean, can you imagine going through that experience with your partner? Um, it's just that that sort of stress is, is just unfeasible. It's interesting. We're going to go into the next story, but we're going to stay on this theme, actually, because the next story follows it quite well. But just before we go on to the, the next headline is the property transactions jump in July from HMRC. Just to give you some a bit of a kind of um, background to what's happening in the industry, really, because it was 32% higher transactions in July of this year compared to July of, to make sure I get this right, the year before, yeah, so it was 21. So the jump of 32% in transactions alone gives you an idea of a market that lenders are basically coming out of in July is suddenly seeing this 32% ramp up. And then with this is not on our story list, guys, don't worry, I'm not going to go on. We are going to go on this story, but just something I shared with Tony last night, something that was released yesterday from a core mortgages that there's a hundred billion pounds of maturing mortgages by the end of this year, making December one of the most horrific months that we're probably likely to see. We're already in this situation. We're now heading towards this and we've got property transactions jumping. Tony, what, What's the outlook? Look, it must fill you with a little bit of dread looking at those numbers and thinking, okay, this is just going to continue, isn't it? Isn't it just going to be the norm until we get these remos out of the way? Yeah, I I don't know. It's it's kind of, I'm a bit punch drunk by this market, if I'm honest, you know, because, you know, the last thing you'd want to be in this market is any sort of analyst or economist because you're you're just like a weatherman. You're just making it up, aren't you? Not that weathermen clearly make it up all the time um just some of the time um so look it every prediction says i get the i get the remo side and there's a massive rise now to try and fix rates um because of cost of living you know it's just it's just it's just phenomenal looking at all the 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 news about you know cost of living and it's going to be five grand for energy you know it's it is imagine quite, having that tone on a maturing mortgage in in yeah, yeah. october and having that 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 cost of living yeah. rise and then saying oh by the way you're about circa one percent when you got your mortgage out but by yeah. the way that's going to be x yeah. now the yeah. the, the, the fear and dread that gives for me i haven't yeah. got more it, it is, it is. On, but i've already got anxiety about it and I, it's not bothering yeah. me and 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 that's the thing you know a lot of these mortgages maturing are people that have never experienced the rate rise you know we've had a bit we've had 14 years of a benign mortgage market you know we've got people that that are now in approaching middle age that bought their house first time buyers in their 30s because that's the average age who have never experienced this and since they bought that house they've got kids they've got you know they've acquired other it's it's a very frightening time but all of that and that's the that's the slight um juxtaposition for me in that we've we've got 30 percent uplifting house purchases still it's not stopping you know everything should be seeing that real slowdown of the market and we're anecdotally hearing it's slowing down but then someone then bums out more facts that say it's gone mental still you know um and interest rates aren't going to get any cheaper swap rates are going up like that so there's clearly going to be more base rate changes this year you know i don't know by how much but there's the way that swap rates two-year swap rates are going they're pricing in some some jumps in my view so it's not going to get any easier so it's just a mad market i don't i don't know but uh, as lee said out of all of this comes opportunity you know for for lenders but and for and for consumers to get the deal that they need but i think the key is just don't panic. Go and see your broker. Go and see your lender if you're if you're a consumer. For those who might listen to this, and the solution will be there. There's nothing to worry about with it. But the reality is, it is going to cost you more. 
you know that, that cannot be avoided everything's going to cost you more and something that hasn't for years i.e your mortgage is now going to be like it probably was when i bought my first house at an interest rate of 8.99 percent and i was over the moon with that that i fixed at 899 um that the mortgage payment is going to be a more considerable part of your monthly salary cost than it than it has been before. So hopefully this will see it slow down. But yeah, it's, it's mad. And we've got 100 million or 100 billion because we've been selling predominantly two year deals <laughs> for the last few years when rates have been really cheap and they're all rolling off. Go on, Leslie. I am. Um... I wonder as well if part of the uh, the big push has been for um, help to buy coming to an end and obviously the um, increase in rate rises. I think, you know, uh, people will panic and think it's kind of a now or never approach. I wonder if now, um, although obviously there's so much business in the pipeline, if there might we might start to see a little bit of a stem towards the back end of this year. You know, it might only be three, four paydays before Christmas. Um, obviously, the right, right, uh, sorry, the rising cost of living, not only with gas and electricity bills, but um, food bills. I think, you know, a lot of families that haven't particularly struggled before might be able to cancel, you know, kids clubs and things like that and really kind of tightening their belts. And then not only that, but for older homeowners that perhaps have benefited for uh, from having a small mortgage on such low interest rates, um, or benefiting from no mortgage will actually now think, you know, I have this big four bedroom detached. I'm paying £400 a month in gas and electricity on it. My, my uh, m- monthly shop's gone up by £200 a month. You know, I'm paying to live in this big house, but actually, do we really need it? So I just wonder that with all those factors combined, will we start to see a little bit of a stem in new um, new lending perhaps towards the back end of this year where people's priorities might just be a little bit different. Ruby, you look like you were about to say something. Yeah, I'll pop over to you. Yeah, two, two things. One thing, um, so the, the, the big sort of 30% jump um, is, is sort of an annual jump and, and it's important to remember obviously with stamp duty and like starting to trail off in June last year, July there would have been a bit of a drop in transactions so maybe helpful to take into account those 30% looks huge might not actually be that big because it's being compared to a month where there was a bit of drop off in transactions anyway um, and I agree with Tony like there's there's so much anecdotally from brokers saying look and the state agents um, although some estate agents don't like to admit it obviously but some have, have been a bit more honest and said we have seen a bit of a dip um, in term and a slowdown but um I think that, that that will start to come through, although it's interesting to see that monthly there was still a bit like a 7% rise, I think it says, 7.2%. Um, so it is still increasing, but perhaps not the 30%. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit, a little bit misleading. And then in terms of the, the, the rates, um, so t- again, Tony was saying doesn't know how, how much they'll go up by. Well, the, the FT um, did a story um, this this month, which suggests that, that interest rates could sort of hit 4%. So, so, Right now they're around 1.75%, but they think by May next year they could hit 4%. So that's sort of the kind of level we're looking at. Um, and so that, that yeah, will have huge implications. Um, and I think that obviously it's anecdotally right now, but with everything kind of how it is and with rates sort of looking like that in the future, I think that those anecdotes will start to become a reality very soon. Just on that, Ruby, you might know better than me because you're in the news, but I, just, I read something yesterday, and I can't remember where I read it. I've been trying to find it, that house prices are slowly declining. Do the increase in house prices, increase in house prices suddenly done a decline. Do you think that's just sort of representative of the fact that we're starting to slow down, the transactions are starting to slow down because well, that's a knock-on well, effect? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it depends It depends what you're looking at, and this might feed into one of the stories we're going to talk about next um, with conveyancing, but um, there is... You know, we are seeing a lot of uh, conveyances kind of massively knocking off value from from asking prices and stuff like that because lenders and conveyances are getting more more conservative. Um, in terms of house price growth, we're seeing house price price growth slow. So by the end of this year, people think it will slow to about five percent house price growth. Bearing in mind we've had double digit growth for for, for a while now, um, so that's a significant drop off. And by next year, I think Santander reckon it will be about two percent growth although they said it could be zero um i don't know if we're going to see 
prices go down necessarily. We might in some places, but, but generally, I think it will. They just they'll just stop. They do generally do that, don't they? Whenever we've yeah. had a huge double-digit increasing, it just sort of plateaus and then starts yeah. to increase again. We don't necessarily drop, do they? So my um, my wife was talking to um, an estate, our estate agent, the one we've used before, because she's looking at supporting her father with um, potentially downsizing because uh, their house is enormous and they're in their eighties. And we were talking about values and and what's happening and what it is interesting. I think. Houses are going on overinflated still, uh, and I've seen that. And I've seen, and I'm only talking about where I am, obviously, but um, with with real insight. But he was telling us that houses are being overinflated to give it a try to see if someone's going to buy it, but they're then being reduced to a still a, a big, a much higher figure than they have been, but to a, a more realistic. Actually, that is probably what the house is actually worth, and they're selling at that. So they're seeing that spike. So I've got one, I'll give you an example. One of my roads, it was at 1.5 mil, uh, didn't sell. They brought it down to 1.25 and it went in two days. So wow. it's kind of, that's what I'm seeing. You know, there are certain ones going at full value, but there's also ones going at above value. So we know one of friends of my son's bought one around the corner from us, it was on at 1.6 and they bought it at 1.72. So there is still a bit of, um, you know, gazumping and going above. But I, I think that house prices are reducing, but estate agents and, and vendors are still trying their arm first, but then it's finding its natural home. And that would tie in with the downsizing that Ruby talked about and we're seeing with valuations, finding that correct figure. Yeah. Well, that leads very nicely onto the next story, doesn't it? Um, so we're going to talk about conveyancing because one thing, uh, um, Tony, I shared this with you, I think. I was reading an article in one of the trade press um, from the conveyancing said to go and stop shouting or stop doing it. They actually, they actually asked the industry and intermediaries to calm down before we had an issue. So actually, this, this was an issue before we found one as lenders. Um, it, the, the headline of the story is some mortgage solutions is conveyancing case loads ramp up as active firms close down. Um, we've already discussed this, Tony, haven't we? That it's an old-fashioned industry. It's it's there's been a huge, huge number of very, very experienced, very good people in conveyancing and surveying that have been around for a long time. And Lee, you mentioned COVID earlier. This is a COVID knock-on effect. Some of them are retiring early. Some have already gone. Some went during the pandemic. But actually, there's no one coming through. So actually, the caseload's going up, and it is going to do it. And it's fell below. 4,000 active companies um, for the first time in more than a year. So there's been fluctuations. Just to Leslie and Lee, just because you are working in the... Oh, Leslie, I'll come to you first because you've been with South for a little bit longer. But um, are you seeing that that issue in the chain? Are you, uh, you know, obviously we're paused now, but prior to pause, were you seeing that things were taking a little bit longer? Were there breaks in the chain? Were there, there elements that weren't happening that should have been happening that were slowing things down? Yeah, absolutely. I think that... Um... Everything has a knock-on effect. So, yes, the it was harder to get uh, appointments booked in, like valuation appointments to get booked in. But then also that, you know, other things as well, like re-inspections, offer extensions, it all has a knock-on effect. So I just think the whole of the market has has slowed down, not, not just that aspect. Ruby, do you speak? You must speak to some of them, some of the conveyance firms at some point. Have you heard any rumbles from their side on on this alone? The fact that there is, you know, a reduction in in the number, of their caseloads going up. It's a really interesting line in there, actually, that two hundred conveyance firms manage forty percent of all the cases. So it just proves that you know that there's a lot of work out there. We're all feeling it. How are, how does the industry that that industry feel? Are they similar to what we're going through from a lender perspective? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I think because uh, it's interesting, I've, I've been working on a piece, but it hasn't gone out yet, just around sort of down valuations. And I say that in quotation marks because um, I've, I've sp- spoken to Ricks and, and they are very much like down valuations are the wrong phrase because um, there's a real sort of butting heads of what the real valuation actually is. Um, but I think that that the whole valuation aspect comes into it because obviously surveyors work for lenders and lenders are, are some I think are becoming a bit more cautious and and I think that with this looming kind of recession potentially ha- about to happen conveyances are very very cautious to kind of 
you know, they need to get the right figure and maybe they're taking longer to get to that figure. And maybe that's what's kind of fueling some of that kind of um, backlog as well. Because I think there's a real issue with data sourcing that that quite a few people have raised to me. Um, and that's causing a lot of, of, of issues is that, um, and, and, and I think, so I've, I've found a few brokers have been trying to contest valuations and I think that's happening more now. So I imagine the more brokers are contesting them as, or, or estate agents are contesting them and saying, hang on a minute, why have you knocked off 150K? Um, which I've seen multiple examples of. And obviously Tony said an even bigger one. Um, the more people contest it, it's just going to create backlog. Um, so I think that there is definitely an issue there, but they are very much standing by the line of, you know, we calculate the market value um, and the asking price is what people are willing to pay. Um, but estate agents are fully aware of the fact that there is a gap there and they're trying their luck because, well, I spoke to one estate agent who said on the portals, if you add 10% on to, to, to the real, real the real price or what they think it probably could go for, um, people will actually more likely click on it because people are kind of desperate at the moment and they're willing to pay more. Um, so in some cases, estate agents are openly saying we add 10% to the value. Um, you know, and, and it's their job, isn't it, to get the seller the most that they can. But it's causing this sort of backlog and, and, and making cases take longer because people are going back and forth and disagreeing on the value and it's going, perhaps going back on the market. You know, it's, yeah, I think that's a big part of the problem. Lee, you worked with uh, loads of lenders in your last job, so you you get an idea and yep. brokers. Um, what, you know, how, how how is feeling, how is emotion on this side of it? I mean, uh, Ruby's used a very good example there that how it can delay because we're going backwards and forwards on price um yeah how's it felt in the market <clears throat> since you know this has all been this has all been brewing oh it's definitely it's definitely been an added factor that that's not been needed there's not been capacity for it in in many ways with with many with many lenders the amount of back and forth that there is on a case you know that that adds more workflow um and at times when you're when they're doing these instructions evaluations you know i've had times where i've heard from the broker saying i'm not even sure this is going to value but ultimately they've got a customer who's buying a property at a certain value they're helping them buy that property and they need to submit that application giving them the advice based on that and they don't know that the property but they're, they're questioning it so if you're already at a starting point when it comes to the valuation at that point you know by the time it's getting to a lender you know that there is there's a lot of extra work there um and without the capacity potentially to pick that up. Um, so it, I've seen so much innovation being done, though, on, on the flip side of that. You know, I've seen sourcing systems start to use um, MVA, MVA data, MVE data, sorry, you know, and starting using desktop valuations and stuff like that, you know, to actually try and have a little, a little bit more understanding. Again, that's only going to do so much. But it's good to see that there's a step in the right direction and brokers are getting more information earlier, um, you know, especially when you're looking at a remortgage where, your default might be to see what's sold on the street, but actually nothing's completed yet. So you're just basing it on what's actually on the market and what's on the market might be massively overinflated. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that innovation. If we can take us, take another step forward and create more time to, sorry, save time when it comes to actually the valuation process for those sorts of transactions, um, because it isn't just the, the purchase market. The remortgage market's definitely getting hit by this as well because of the inflated prices. And then the knock-on effect is a perfect storm, isn't it? We've got this, these mature yeah. mortgages coming up. They're happening now yeah. and they're happening more towards the end of the year. It's just, it is a perfect storm of, of of a nightmare for all of us, I guess. Tony, you haven't spoken on this part. I know we talk about it, but the things I have noticed in conveyancing across the entire chain is a lot of innovation on technology and the way they're delivering and the way they're producing. They are trying to kind of innovate to, to to kind of issue this problem is that working yeah i think i think let's just um we've talked we've kind of this this article focuses on conveyancing rather than surveying so we've we've, we've mixed our things yeah, mixed on this one. Me, yeah. so I, I won't do any more on the surveying side because it's been it's been eloquently covered but conveyancing yeah look um as the article states technology is an enabler to this all right and it is one thing that we are not the conveyancing part of the industry, but the mortgage industry in general is a bit behind when it comes to um, digitizing the conveyancing process. You know, I've, I've always tried to ask, I ask our um, operational guys, why can't we have electronic signatures 
for, for, for mortgage deeds. And that's not a lender thing. That's an HM land registry issue. So for, I'm, a, you know, only my words in case anybody wants to shout at me later. But um, um, that is to my understanding. So as an industry, as, as a mortgage industry of which conveyancing is a, is, is a big part of, because without it, the mortgage industry stops because we don't a lend any money or make any money. Um, it needs to, it does speed up. You know, if you look at other countries, I know we've talked about this before, but you know, Sweden, it's like 15 minutes and it's done, you know? Um, so we can learn a lot from, from our continental colleagues, um, about how to do stuff. So I think, yeah, as a, again, it's the, it's the groundswell of stuff. You know, you've got more, more transactions than ever, less people doing it. Technology is a barrier. It, 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 it's, you know, and, and, but hopefully, you know, it's like anything, um, the human condition, we don't change unless you're at the cliff edge, you know, why would you until you're actually at the precipice? So we're now at that point where hopefully we've got to do stuff differently. And therefore we will look at how do we speed this process up because we cannot continue to do that because the impact of conveyancing delays is, is huge in the, in the mortgage chain because nobody gets paid because without that mortgage completing the the borrower doesn't get their house the broker doesn't get paid for the advice they provide the builder doesn't get paid for the house they've built you know the, it, it, it's such a big part of it and obviously from our you know the impact we see is that forecasting of when that completion is going to happen you know we knew it used to be on average three months from from offer to completion for a purchase that's now going to five and that's extending. So it's very hard to try and forecast and and actually make any money because don't forget, we're locking in interest rates on a lot of these deals six to nine months or even a year in some cases before it completes. And the market, as we know, has changed massively. So it's a big challenge. So it's in, it's in all of our interest to try and support this, the conveyancing side of it to move it along. Oh, sorry, phone's ringing. Um, so I went off topic a bit there. So yeah, Technology is an enabler, but I'm not. I'm not blame. I, I'm not placing any blame in the conveyancing part of the sector. I think it's all of us to address as an industry. Tony is aware of this, but I work with um, a, a commercial conveyancing company um, who are very innovative and actually bringing. And they they hire. I'm not plugging them. They hire a huge amount of interns every year and then distribute them out across the sector. So they've got this really good training program, which I think is brilliant. So there are things happening. Um, but one thing we did, I have written about for a legal uh, publication, I'm not allowed to discuss, but I did write an article on land registry as a whole, because as an organization, it's archaic in its way. And there's been no investment to bring it up and modernize it to a, to a modern world. So there are rumblings. I was asked to write that piece um, because the, the whole industry was looking, going, actually, our issue stems right from the very top. And we need that modernization. We need that investment. So with a bit of luck, maybe we can all as an industry pull together and start lobbying the government and get the, you know, get some investment put into land registry to, to speed these things along and digitalize it. Let's stick with the topic of uh, volatile market and move on to one sector that you've got to feel very sorry for first time buyers. Um, this is not a market to be a first time buyer by any standards. Ruby, I know you haven't you haven't bought yet, have you? No, no, I'm. It's. I don't want to buy right now. But in a year, I'm kind of eyeing it. But yeah, no, I don't want to buy right now. <laughs> you just answered the next question. I was going to ask you. You're going to plan to do it this year, probably not. Um, but this story is. Um, uh, sorry, just for the benefit of the audience, Ruby's by far the youngest one on this panel, so the only one that's that's not quite on the ladder yet. Um, that's why I asked her directly. So this story is about first time buyers. It is Yorkshire Building Society's research for their Housing Britain report. Um, I just found it quite interesting as a as a, a, a sort of a, a, a topic opener, if it, as it were. That the people are saying, you know, you need to ramp down your expectations. I think we all knew that. I don't think we needed the research yeah. to say that needed to be done. <laughs> what I wanted to talk about was what life looks like to be a first time buyer right now. Leslie, you look like you died to say something on this, so I'm going to come straight to you. Uh, well, I think for first time buyers, there is a number of factors, not just um, the world that we live in today, you know, snowflakes and all that. But I also think a couple of things. So I, the, the, the pressures of social media 
um, with the pressures of social media, with, you know, houses being Instagram worthy, you're always constantly comparing yourself to others. So I kind of think there's there's that culture now as well. Like, you know, you're seeing like your friends or your older siblings, um, you know, before and after pictures all like everywhere. I mean, you just can't escape from it on social media. But not only that, I think that the generation before them or, you know, older siblings have benefited from more, um government um government assistance you know help to buy before that my choice home buy um first buy which enabled first time buyers not only to get onto the ladder easier but also help them to buy maybe a three or four bedroom house where otherwise really they probably could have only afforded a two bedroom house at a time when interest rates were a lot lot lower. And I also think with the dynamics of the world changing now, first time buyers probably would have had like a make do approach before, you know, just to get on the ladder, I will have that one bedroom apartment or I will have that two bedroom terrace. Whereas now, a two-bedroom might not be sufficient because one, it used to be like a guest room and then potential nursery, but they might now both work from home. So they're thinking, well, we need a minimum of a three-bedroom house because we both, you know, we need an office and a spare room. So I think all of these factors are contributing to what their expectations are. So I think the combination of social media and um and also just the changing dynamics as well. But now they're looking to buy at a time when house prices are much more expensive, interest rates are higher, and they just can't get what they could for the money, you know, three or four years ago. Damn you, Mrs. Hinch. Um, no, I agree. I agree with what you're saying, though. It's an interesting view, actually, this whole kind of, you know, that, that dream home you're moving into immediately when I... At their age, I would have gone into perhaps a, a refurbishment. I would have gone and bought a nice little terraced house, you know, two up, two down job and, and done it up and lived quite happily in that for 10 years. I didn't do that. I moved to London. But, you know, uh, Ruby, go on. You're going to say something? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I, I just think that um, with how the thing is, that people are getting a lot more kind of creative and, and looking beyond um, there was this interesting article in the Times at the weekend about a couple who were looking to buy a one-bedroom flat in Brixton. Um, well, it was Brixton, Bermondsey, or Camberwell, I think, and they um, had a budget of four hundred and fifty grand, and then they ended up uh, buying a farm in central Italy, um, and it was been like damaged by an earthquake. And um, I mean, there were kind of caveats, so you know they. I think they paid 170,000 for it in the end, but they did have a bit of help from mum and dad um, and, and obviously saved up a bit of their own deposit. Um, but I think that that's sort of getting a bit more creative looking beyond the UK. I think more people are going to start start doing that because because these one beds that are so expensive now, they're so depressing um, and people don't want to be cooped up in that tiny space, um, especially since we've just come out of the pandemic. It's a real kind of... Um, juxtaposition like people want space and want to be out they don't want to be like put in these like tiny little containers and I think you know nomad visas are on the rise um, across the across Europe and a lot of companies especially sort of more tech companies are getting very friendly with that so I think there's more flexibility for people to look a lot further um, and I think that's what a lot of first-time buyers are going to start doing I definitely know it's what a lot of my friends are starting to look at doing uh, that either that or they'll never afford to get on the property ladder. It's, it's either or really, um, but very few are actually managing to get on this property ladder. I I agree, and actually, um, I use my friends as a comparison. So for for everyone's benefit, I'm 44. Um, I have a house, but I had the luxury of of having um, you know inheritance that paid for my house, which was you know nobody's lucky in that position. But my friends. Those of us that moved to London, started our careers, bought in Norfolk, where I live now, because the house prices were so much lower and went into immediate um, landlord territory and rented in London. Sensible. Those that didn't are now permanently locked into rental accommodation. They, they, they just literally get to 40 and think, well, there's just no point getting a mortgage now. All I'm going to do is leave debt to my or a house and debt to, to my children. So they've got a bit negative about it. Lee, you've been quiet for a little while. Let's, give us, let's have an opinion yeah. from you on first time buyers. I think I think um, I, I agree. I agree. I think that they are being more innovative in terms of you know what they can look beyond in terms of what they can afford with their budget. But I think 
also it's just natural that if you're building a deposit over a longer period of time, your expectations grow. <laughs> you know, my wife is horrendous at being on right move. It winds me up if I'm completely honest about it, because she will tell me things that we cannot afford and will never be able to buy. Okay. But she would love to tell me, Oh, look at this kitchen. Look at that. So obviously from what Leslie was saying, I totally agree. You know, it's social media, apps you know being able to go on and visualize the properties so much easier but i think coincide with that if before you know it's taken a long time to build a deposit it's getting even longer now if you're taking longer to build up that expectation is building unfortunately so is what you want to buy so i can I, i'm not surprised with the with the study i think that what will will naturally come though is that people will realize that, that what they want is three steps down the yeah. line and and it won't be you know, their, their forever house. Um, we've got two little ones and we go and see their parents quite often. You know, obviously the, the, the friends in terms of our friends, sorry, I am one of their parents. I got that wrong. Um, so um, we go and see all the family groups and nearly everybody wants to move because they need extra space. So I think I just highlighted as much as they would have wanted to get to their forever home straight away. But I think the brokers are, are doing a very good job for helping customers that aren't ready yet okay what does that house look like now and can we buy you tomorrow's house today really cheesy but is it a case that you understand your affordability one thing that, that this report doesn't really show is how much did the customer actually be educated in what they can actually buy at the moment is that purely just based on right move searches that that's what they would like or you know have they had that intervention with a with a broker that education with a broker and i think that with my business development hat on a moment, <clears throat> um, you know, brokers out there that are working with estate agents, yes, the market is tough. Don't, don't get me wrong. Huge amount of opportunity. But with a broker, the education we can give estate agents is immense because actually from, from their point of view and understanding the mortgage market really does help them to understand how to make the transition of a purchase or a sale go as smoothly as possible. So if you are, a broker that's listening or a firm that's, that works with introducers, you know, do you treat them like your customers? Are you talking to them about the market? Are you talking about how you can work together? Because ultimately that can make a lot of these frustrations and these things that are a bit harder in the market a little bit easier. Tony, there is one solution to this and it taps into what Leslie was saying. It taps into a slightly reduced cost on the mortgage and a self-build. Um, you are still just, uh, I'll let you plug because we've not got a chance to plug in this one, but um, we are still in the self-built market. It's the one thing we've kept on yeah. to while we've had this pause because actually it does provide an unusual and quite unique solution, even for first-time buyers. I hadn't, until a couple of years ago when you and I started talking, I hadn't yeah. considered the self-build as a first-time buyer um, option. Is that, yeah, we... Could we maybe encourage the first-time buyer market and flourish a little bit with, with this kind of look? For those that want to have what Leslie was saying, that Instagrammable house, well, what better way to do that than have a shell and start from scratch and have a, a regularly paid-out mortgage and, and actually go that way? So actually the construction costs could be a lot less than the market values we're seeing now. Oh, definitely. Um, you know, we're, the, 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 we're not building enough houses, you know, but that, let's not go around this issue more and more. And we haven't built enough houses since 1979, you know, uh, when we when the when the social housing policy changed. So one but one way to do that, and that's through the government's right to buy and uh, right to build initiative and working with local authorities is, is around developing brownfield sites to create opportunities for for for, S, for SME builders to create largely I think from to go back to the question it's more prevalent for kind of custom build rather than self build for first time buyers because custom build is is potentially well it's definitely less stress for a build for for the for the person building it because that's largely facilitated by uh the the builder um and I think there's it's it's a cheaper a slightly cheaper alternative to doing it but there's there's the challenge is is it's great the government providing right to build it's then the local authority then has to go and do it and i think that's where some of the blockers are but there definitely is um a desire by the government to support first-time buyers and building your own home 
and getting us into that cultural psyche where, to be fair, most of the rest of the world is in terms of custom build and, and self build. So yeah, we, we firmly support that, that, but it's a, you know, it's a daunting prospect, isn't it? To go when you've had, you just sat there building your deposit to then go, right, actually I've got to build a house. So, mm. um, but there is, you know, we always talk about the Gravely Hill project. So I'd recommend that any, any would be um, self build or custom builder goes and gets down to that site in Bicester, which they're creating a self build custom build village. So you well, can watch, kind of, watch a docu, watch a docu on all four. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah, you can, you can see it all. So I think I think it is. A, like that. Yeah, I, th I think I think it definitely is. It's it's a not quite the moment is it's not as an obvious journey is just going and buying a house okay or renovating something else but it's it definitely should be considered if you are finding those options but back to leslie's point if you are looking for that third bedroom for the office custom build is a great way of doing that because you're actually designing that house with that in fact you're not sat in a box room or, or the corner of the spare bed so i think that's uh, the important bit for me and just a quick seg segue back to ruby's point I'm watching that program on that couple that bought, bought the village in Italy. It's it's on it's on Channel Four um, Extra. It's called Help. I bought a village. I don't know if any of you are watching it, but oh god, I actually saw about about ten minutes of it. It yeah. was on the TV. I, was, I think I'm watching, watching the news. It's about, the news. It's about like, people it? who have accidentally gone and bought village is a slight um, um, elongation for the, for the for the program. It's more Hamlets, I would would say. But that that couple that Ruby's talked about, they have got, you know, a village in Italy, which has got two hundred and fifty acres of land with it for for half the price of buying that one bed flat in Clapham, as Ruby was saying. You know, what what they're brave and fair play to them. But you know, th those options are there for people, and I think Ruby's right that I think more and more people of Ruby's age um we'll be considering that as a viable option as we look at hybrid working so ruby if you decide to buy a farm can i have the farmhouse oh. so i can have my dog sanctuary please i'll have my donkeys as well if you don't mind so we... <laughs> yes. Yes. i've got a whole a whole staff that's brilliant we'll look so... after the place where you can say you can you we'll yeah. just look after it it's fine but i think the, the last thing i would say around um first time buyers is is this article is 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 lovely but it's it's the same story as ever it's just slightly highlighted now this has always been the story you know uh, we always want more than we can have and then that reality hits and i think the challenge we have now is those who have got more than they wanted are going to struggle when rates rise mm -hmm. if they were at the top end of affordability so that is a concern and i'm sure there's a concern for a lot of people that did slightly overextend um to get that right house um so that 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 is a that is a concern i think um and i do think that slightly slightly different segue again that with the cost of living rises that i think hybrid working might soon become less of a majority as people look to the employer to fund their heating in the winter i.e work in an office rather than at home uh, it's fine now it's lovely and sunny but when the heating's turned on we all sat there like I do with four layers and a blanket and um, a hot water bottle, which is great on team. Right no, now, I've been, I've been dying to my clients' offices to use their yeah. aircon because I work from home 100%. I've been yeah, sitting exactly, in exactly. week. But, I'm like, so, any excuse to go to someone's office, I'm off. <laughs> I think personal buyers might consider then actually working in offices is preferable to working from home. But it's the balance of the cost of fuel I, as well as I the cost think, of yeah. utilities. And and train fares, everything's going up. Oh, yeah. Nothing's coming Man. down. Nothing's enticing us to do any of this stuff no. yet. It's just all. Yeah. I mean, it would be nice. If, maybe in September, when we get an actual government, we might be all right, and we won't start to see some action. But now, for the sake of the listeners, we are in the limbo stage. I'm sure you'll remember it if you listen to this in a couple of years' time. I'm sure you remember what it was like to have a ghost government. Um, but we are getting back there. Listen, guys, we've got one more topic, but I'm afraid we're not going to get there. Ruby did mention it, and there is a story on FT Advisor with regards to what happens and where the interest rates might be next year. So maybe we can 
go on to FT Advisor and have a look in the mortgage section and see that for yourself. So that's all we've got time for. That flew. I mean, we have got a pretty much a, a market that we can probably talk for a day on. So uh, an hour is not enough to fill. But thank you so much to the entire panel. I think it's been um, a really interesting discussion, really balanced viewpoints from everybody. So thank you very much. For the brokers that are listening, uh, you've obviously found this. So please do sign up for... Um, the, the series it will give you a notification as soon as they come out and if you'd like to join us as a broker we haven't done this before but if you'd like to join us as a broker on the panel we'd like to invite some brokers to join us we've had journalists uh, three years we've had our team we've had people from uh, mortgage clubs we would quite like to see some brokers join us and have that real balanced argument so if you'd like to join us please speak to your bdm you deal with at saffron if not just email us on a regular address don't, we haven't got SFI live in um, September. We're coming back in October. So SFI, not so live, we'll be back at the end of September and launched on the 1st of October. And then SFI live, the webinar series, will be back then. But in the meantime, a big thank you to the panel. Thank you for listening. Great. And um, we hope you join us again next month. Goodbye, everyone. Cheers, Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.